today here in this passage about the Lord's Supper. And uh, we're going to look at verses 27 um, through 31 this morning. One of the things that 1 Corinthians 11 talks about is properly having the right respect and um, behavior during the Lord's Supper. You know, it, it, we live in a day and age that uh, doesn't always understand have, how to have the proper respect for things. We can sometimes forgive that for children, right? Children don't know how to behave. We have to be taught how to behave in certain circumstances. I remember years ago, my cousin, he's a little younger than me, uh, we were getting together, I think, for, uh, it was a family birthday, and I don't remember which family member was having a birthday party, but he was, he was about four years old. And my grandmother had bought new coloring books for those of us grandchildren uh, so that during, we were going to a nice restaurant and during the meal, the children wouldn't be agitated and wanting to do other things so they could color. And we walk in the restaurant and there's a table reserved and it's in the back corner of the restaurant all the way across the restaurant for the family. And my cousin walks in with the, with the new crayons and the new coloring book and he sees his mother in the back corner, he's four years old, and he yells, Mom, look what grandma bought us so we would be quiet. And he yells that across the restaurant, right? And the whole restaurant, you know, chuckles because it was funny because that kind of defeated the purpose. Um, and uh, he was excited to have a new coloring book. We expect that of children, right? Children might un- not understand. That, that's, that's not the point to yell across the restaurant. It's not really the point. Um, on other occasions, though, sometimes people who should know better, maybe are more mature and should know better, don't always have, um, you know, the right respect or understanding of what, what's involved. I remember years ago being on a mission trip to uh, Romania, and uh, we flew in and out of Hungary, actually, through Budapest. And as we, we, we had one day before our flight left from Budapest, one evening, one afternoon and evening, uh, one of the things we did is we had a it was a group of teenagers, it was a youth trip, uh, and they had done great work you know, running Bible clubs and holding music concerts, and, and uh, I had the chance to preach the gospel, and a couple of the other pastors that were with us preached the gospel there in Romania through translators. And it, that part of the trip was really good, but we got to Budapest, and when we get to Budapest, um, one of the things that the missionary had scheduled as a thank you was a river cruise down the Danube River. So now you're cruising down the Danube River, and on one side is the plains okay, of, of Pest, and on the other side is the Buda Hills, and up on that hill stands like the castle, which was the seat of uh, the Holy Roman Emperor's government, government for like a thousand years. And on the on the Pest side is all of these uh, is is the the Parliament Building, which is one of the most remarkable ones in Europe. And then a, a bunch of music conservatories, like Beethoven and all these famous composers, had taught music at these places. And you're getting a tour of this now. Many of you I see going, "Wow, that's pretty interesting." Well, I'm with a group of teenagers, and some of them are like, why do we have to do this boring river cruise? We're like, you're on the Danube River. You know, not many people get this chance to be on a Danube River cruise, you know, for a few hours. And they're like, I wanted to go shopping. You can go shopping anywhere, all right? So they didn't appreciate what they were seeing. They just didn't have... Some of it, the maturity or the background to understand. They're like, we're going to come back here later. You know, some other time in life when I'm older, I'll come back and see this again. Probably not. Okay, that's not how life works most of the time. It's not like you just, oh, let's just take a weekend to Budapest, right? Um, it just doesn't work that way most of the time. So again, immaturity. On another occasion, I saw a, a change in, in attitude where um, we had a group of young people uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was actually the last senior trip, uh, the last graduating class of Calvary Christian School 
We were in Washington, D.C., and we were kind of tired. If you know Washington, D.C., there's a lot of walking, and we're by the Vietnam Wall and Memorial, and um, we sit down there, and I can tell they're tired, and they're like, this is boring history, and, you know, and I'm sitting there with three young men, and we look at the wall, and I, I said to them, you know, because I could tell they don't really know what they're looking at. I said, see all those names on that wall? The average age is 19 of a name on that wall. How old are you? They're like 18. I'm like, you would only have one more year of life if you were sent to Vietnam. I said, 60,000 names on that wall. And now they got quiet. And you could see, you know, they, they realized, this is important. This is something special. This isn't just some wall with a bunch of names on it. And so it sunk in. All of a sudden, the importance of what this is sunk into them. And they realized, look, this is kind of a, a special place. This isn't a place to be horsing around. is isn't a place to be like, oh, boring. How boring is this? All of a sudden, they realized, you know, people probably who were their grandparents' age or, you know, slightly older than their parents um, had paid price uh, for their country. And, and so it was good. I was glad to see them get somber and realize that this was a special place and this is a memorial for a reason and this is a place to be somber and this is a place to reflect on the cost of, of uh, freedom. And uh, so I was, I was glad to see that. But you know what? It's, it's not just possible for us to misunderstand um, what we're seeing in a historical context or misunderstand a, a special place like a, a war memorial where we recognize who, those who gave their lives. But even something as important as the Lord's Supper is possible for us as Christians to not understand and maybe to be flippant about. This is what the Apostle Paul's dealing with here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let us go back to verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Take, eat this bread. This is in remembrance of Christ. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood, the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus says, Eat and drink this in remembrance of what Christ did. His body was was nailed to that cross, and he died, and his blood was shed for our sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do shew the Lord's death till he come. As often as you do this, you memorialize, you show what Jesus did by his death on the cross. Looking forward to that time that he returns. So now he says, considering that's what this means, this remembers the sacrifice for your sins. This is a memorial of what Christ did for you. You were a sinner. I was a sinner. All of us are sinners. We were well-deserving. We had earned through our sin. We had earned God's just condemnation. And yet he loved us so much that he sent his sinless son to bear the sin that we couldn't bear, to bear the wrath that we couldn't bear, and to die on a cross to pay for our sins. That's what this symbolizes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now notice the L-Y on there. The Greek word behind this is clearly an adverb describing how this is done. It's not asking, is your character worthy to take the Lord's Supper? We would all answer no to that. Because we're all sinners. Okay? So this isn't an issue of whether or not you're good enough to take the Lord's Supper. 
This is an issue of the manner in which they were doing it. Now we know from earlier in the chapter that he says in verse 21, for in eating everyone taketh before his own supper and one is hungry and another is drunken. So what is he saying? We know that what's happening is some of you are getting drunk and some of you are overeating and some are coming in hungry and haven't had anything to eat and you're mistreating your brothers and sisters in the church. It's pretty hard to meditate on what Christ did for you on the cross if you're drunk. All right? It's hard to genuinely symbolize what Christ did on the cross for us if we're, if we're mistreating our brothers and sisters next to us. And that's exactly the point here. So what he's saying is, when you observe the Lord's Supper, you must make sure that the manner in which you do it is a worthy manner, is appropriate to what this symbolizes. In other words, obviously drunkenness would be inappropriate. Okay, obviously, disregard for, for one another in the body is inappropriate. You know what this would say? I, we can do this. We, most of us aren't doing this, okay, because we observe it a little differently today um, in the sense that, we, that, you know, it's not like a bunch of you got together for a big breakfast and excluded other people this morning or something, and you're not coming here and getting drunk, all right? So we, we say, well, then how does this apply? You know what? If you sit there during the Lord's Supper and you think about that person down the row from you, I sure am glad I'm a better Christian than him. I don't know if he should be taking it. Is that respecting the body? In other words, is that kind of self-righteousness? Isn't this showing that I have no righteousness and that I need Jesus' righteousness? And if I come to it with self-righteousness, that, that that actually is disregarding the meaning of this? In other words, that's why I say when we take this, this isn't something for you to worry about what the person down the road is doing, but you to examine yourself. All right? If we like to, as, as people, we like to compare ourselves with the others and think, and you know, we make up all these little definitions and draw the lines and go, you know, I am the you know, horseshoe champion of East Winter Garden or something like that, you know. And uh, great, okay, well, that, you know, and we, we so narrow things that we make ourselves, I'm better than people at this or that. And we like to do that kind of thing, all right? But we also tend to do that spiritually. But you know, there's something really strange about spiritual pride. What do you have to be proud about spiritually? Think about this. You're a sinner who deserves condemnation, and the only hope you have of eternal life is through Jesus Christ. What is there to be proud about? But yet there's a lot of people that walk around going, I sure am glad I'm more spiritual than other people. What do you have that wasn't given to you? Every, every piece of righteousness that's been credited to you was given to you by God. And so it's possible for us to do this unworthily by being proud or be, by being, you know, by being... Uh, you know, worried more about other people than about ourselves. Another way would be to be flippant about it. For us, that probably looks like kind of daydreaming and forgetting what I'm doing. It, it's possible that you've taken the Lord's Supper so many times in your life that you just go through the motions and you don't think about what it means. If you don't think about the fact that Jesus' body was nailed to that cross and his blood was shed for you while you're doing this, then you're just going through motions. That, in a sense, would... Go into an unworthy way to do it. In other words, it's, it's not just a, you don't, get any, you don't gain anything except for maybe two calories from the little piece of bread and two or three from the little piece of the drink of juice. You know, that you, you got about 10 calories, that's all you gain if you're not thinking about meditating on what Christ did for you. 
right? In fact, on the other hand, as we're going to see in this passage, by doing it unworthily, by being flippant about it or not being uh, focused about it, what we're actually doing is harming ourselves spiritually. That the great benefit of this is that I meditate on what, what the Lord did in Christ. Okay, another way, obviously, would be to make this something, you know, the proverbs of a country, the proverbs of a nation will tell you about its values. So, for example, Mahatma Gandhi said, you can judge the value of a civilization by how it treats its animals. Well, from a Hindu standpoint, where animals represent reincarnated ancestors, that's a Hindu value system, right? Now, the Bible says that a righteous man regardeth the life of the bee of a beast, so torturing animals is not a Christian virtue. On the other hand, the Bible also does say that it's okay to eat meat, that that was given to us at the flood, and that we have indications of Jesus. For example, when he observed the Lord's Supper here, the first time, the Last Supper, as we call it, with his disciples, was a Passover at which you eat lamb. So Jesus ate meat. Okay, so... From a Christian standpoint, it's not, see, whereas from a Hindu standpoint, sometimes eating of meat would be considered bad, and therefore your culture's you know, bad if you eat meat. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Let me say this. If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, fine. Nothing wrong with that. You want to do that? If you're that because you think you're, it's somehow Christian, then you misunderstand biblical doctrine. If you do that because you don't like meat, or for your health reasons or whatever, fine, great. You just have compassion on animals and don't like the idea of them being slaughtered so you can eat them? Fine, I have no problem with that. But if you say, well, I'm a vegan and all Christians should be, well, then you're not understanding biblical doctrine, okay? But we have to understand here that when we have a proverb, that indicates the values of a civilization. You know, there's a proverb in America. Time flies when you're having fun, right? What does that mean? It means that if I'm doing something fun, like two hours goes by like that. But if I'm at work, then it just drags, right? So what does that say about our culture? It says, in our culture, what does America value? Fun. And the proof of that is how much entertainment do we have? I mean, how many streaming services are there now to watch thousands, tens of thousands of shows and movies and all kinds of things? I mean, we kind of live in the land of fun, right? How many theme parks are there here? And that's not counting the secondary attractions, right? I mean, yeah, Disney's got four, and uh, Universal's got two, and SeaWorld's got, depending on how you count them, you know, and then if you start counting water parks, we've got even more. And, and there's all kinds of theme parks here, and then you've got secondary attractions, right? Like the, the wheel at Icon Park and all kinds of other things. If you could spend, if you took a month off and just went on vacation to Orlando, you still probably couldn't see everything that's here. There's like a month worth of just like attractions and diversions. It's not wrong to go to those things, but your life is more than that. Your life is more than that. But see, time flies when you're having fun. Now, I'm not saying fun is wrong, but do understand that what that does, though, is if you make fun the highest importance, then you will actually skew things as far as Christianity goes. Because there's times that we have to understand that Following the Lord costs sacrifice sometimes. And it may not be fun in the traditional sense. Okay? And the reason I say this is, for example, there have been churches that have attempted to make the Lord's Supper fun. Um, I think 
trying to remember when it was. I was in New York City um, years ago. It's probably about 15, 16 years ago. And we were down in lower Manhattan, and we were near the Trinity Episcopal Church down there. And uh, we, were, we were just leaving church. We had left church and gone down to lower Manhattan. We had gone to a Bible-believing church, went to Heritage Baptist Church there in Manhattan. And uh, this lady comes up, and she's like, oh, you're all dressed like you went to church. And we said, yeah. She said, I just went to church at Trinity. It was so much fun. We're like, fun? She's like, they had a clown mass today. All the pastors dressed up as clowns and served the Lord's Supper. So they literally had clown noses and makeup and big shoes and things like this, and they served the Lord's Supper to people. You can look it up on Facebook, these kind of things. Churches do this, clown masses, where they serve the Lord's Supper dressed as clowns. Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I would contend that it's an unworthy manner to serve the Lord's Supper dressed as a clown. Okay? Right? So, yeah, it might be fun, but you know, the Lord's Supper isn't primarily supposed to be about fun. It's supposed to be about reflection and self 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 reflection about my life and my salvation in Christ. It's not supposed to be about, did it, wasn't, that church makes it more fun. They ride a roller coaster while they serve it, they have clowns who serve it, they do whatever. Or even the churches that decide that they're going to serve Coca-Cola and Doritos because that's more people's taste today. Heard of churches doing this. We don't use bread and the fruit of the vine anymore. We're going to have Coke and Doritos because that's what people like better. But Jesus did say, I won't drink this fruit of the vine again until I do so in my kingdom. There's a symbolism in the fruit of the vine, and that is Jesus, when he returns, there's going to be a, a supper, a banquet, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to drink the fruit of the vine again. And so our drinking this fruit of the vine in remembrance of what he did is also looking forward to his return. He doesn't drink Coca-Cola to do that. Now, I like Coca-Cola, all right? But it's not for this. It might go good with a pizza, but it's not for this. So we need to make sure that as we observe the Lord's Supper that we're doing it in a worthy manner. The, the way in which we're doing it is reflective of, of the solemnness and the truth of what's going on, and then in our own hearts that we're not, that we're not being flippant about it, that we're not judging others, that we're not uh, disregarding others or not considering the body of Christ around us. He says, verse 28, But I'll let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. In other words, examine yourself here. Think. As I'm doing this, here's representing Christ's death on the cross and atoning work for me is my action right now reflecting that I understand that, that I know that, that that's true in my life. In other words, examine yourself. This is a great time of self-examination because the good news of the gospel is being reflected here. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us. And, and I, by that, I'm not just saying, hey, you know, a bunch of people are sinners. No, I'm saying I'm a sinner. Apart from what Christ did, I would be lost. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of what God would have us to be. And that's not just human frailty and limitedness. Human beings are inherently not infinite. That's not what sin is. Sin is saying, God gave me this command and I'm doing different because I think I know better because I'm going I'm to be autonomous and run my own life. That's the nature of sin. That's what Eve does in the garden. That's what Adam does in the garden. They see this fruit. God told them not to eat it, and they go, we know better. God's trying to withhold something good from us. We'll, we'll get it for ourselves. Think about how many sins are that way. 
God didn't give me all the money I need, so I need to steal some from somebody else. Okay? God didn't, you know, God didn't give me, um, you know, the friends I need, so I'm going to try to wreck somebody else's life and steal their friends by telling gossip and things about them. Who knows what kind of things people do? All kinds of things like that where we say, God hasn't been good enough to me, so I have to take things into my own hands. That's often the heart of what is behind sin. That's true in all of us. We've all done things like that. There's not enough joy to be found in worshiping God, and so I'm going to you know, not really be faithful to worship of the Lord on the Lord's day. Instead, I'm going to go golfing. I'm going to go to the beach. That's where more joy is to be found. See, that's saying I think I know better than God in this, these kinds of instances. And so we're all sinners, every one of us. And that sin deserves condemnation. God, in his righteous judgment, has said that what we've done is wrong and deserves condemnation. The wages of sin is death. The reason there's death in the world is because our first parents sinned and died and, and died because of it. And we have all inherited their nature and have all individually chosen to sin as well. And we've all earned that condemnation. But the good news of the gospel is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son, the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, took on our humanity. He lived on this earth and unlike us, he perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. And then he willingly went to the cross and died on that cross to pay for your sins and for mine. And he rose again the third day to conquer death so that we can have eternal life. And now he's ascended to the right hand of his heavenly father. And when we do this, we're remembering what Jesus did for us. Now, I don't know everybody here and I know no one's heart. Maybe there's someone with us today who's never come to faith in Christ Please let me say this. If, you, if after this service I can help you, I'd love to. Let me show you, let one of us show you how you can know Christ, how you can know you have eternal life, how you can know your sins are forgiven. Please find me after this service. You can find most of our church members. You can find Pastor Jed who led our singing. Most of us could at least direct you to somebody who could help you. We'd love to open the word of God and pray with you and show you from the word how you can know Christ and follow him. But what this passage is calling on us to do is to examine ourselves. If we know the Lord, we'd examine ourselves. We're sinners saved by grace. So let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. You see, if you'll examine yourself, then you can eat and drink. See, this isn't an issue of, did you sin real bad this week, therefore you can't do this. This is an issue of, if you sinned this week, did you, are you repenting? Not, well, I only did a few small sins. No, then you need to repent. I did a big sin, then you need to repent. And I, how you want to define that, we all kind of do this in our mind. Well, there's these big sins and there's these little sins. The little ones don't matter so much. But no, Jesus died for all sin. And none of them are really little. Now, some are worse than others, undoubtedly. Saying something harsh to someone and unloving isn't the same as murdering them. You might have murder in your heart, but that doesn't mean you murdered them. But, you know what? Jesus died for both of those things, and both of those things condemn us, and both of those things require the shed blood of Christ. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Eats and drinks, that word damnation has the idea of chastening. Like the passage we read from Hebrews today. Alright, if you're without chastening, then you're not true sons, is what Hebrews tells us. In other words, you're bringing God's condemnation on you in this life. 
But this caused many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. He says, because of this, some of you have gotten sick because of the way you've mistreated the Lord's Supper, and some of you have even died. Some of the Corinthians had died prematurely because of the way they had observed the Lord's Supper. So in other words, this is a pretty serious thing. We don't want to flippantly observe the Lord's Supper. We want to do it both in a way and with a heart that is appropriate to it. And notice what he says here in verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If you'll judge yourself and confess your sin and examine yourself, then you don't bring God's judgment on yourself. But if you go through this unworthily, the way you observe it is flippant and not worthy to what its meaning is. See, what does he say here? Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For many of you are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, he says here. And so what has happened is that we need to examine ourselves. That's the key item. Examine ourselves. So every one of us can probably think of a sin we committed this week. You thought something unkind. You thought something immoral. You had hatred in your heart towards somebody. Maybe you did something sinful. You looked at something you shouldn't be looking at. You maybe stole something. We all sinned this week somehow. So how do I respond? And certainly it's been a month since we observed the Lord's Supper. This past month we've all done something like this. So how is it that we... How is it that then we partake in the Lord's Supper? Well, we examine ourselves and we confess our sin. And we recognize that what this symbolizes is exactly... What we need is the remedy of our sin, Jesus' death on the cross and his shed blood for us. So it's not an issue of did you sin this week, it's an issue of how you will respond to it. If you're with us today, I want to observe, I want to invite you to participate in the Lord's table with us today if you meet a few qualifications. First of all, that you know Christ is your Savior. This passage says, do this in remembrance. You can't do this in remembrance of Christ if you don't know who Christ is and you don't understand what he did for you. So first is, that, and we don't say this to be, to be exclusive or elitist. We're just saying be careful because this passage warns us against flippantly taking the Lord's Supper. And if you haven't come to faith in Christ, what you need to do is you need to believe in Jesus. You don't need to take the Lord's Supper. All right, You need to be saved. You don't need to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper won't save you. Get that clear. There are some do- denominations that give the impression that somehow you get some kind of credit from God and it helps you spiritually just by merely doing this action. No, this symbolizes what saves you. It's Jesus' death on the cross that saves you and you receive that free gift of eternal life because of Jesus' death by coming in repentant faith to Jesus. But this doesn't save you. It symbolizes what saves you. Okay? So if you haven't been saved, we invite you to be saved. Second, that you've been baptized by immersion after your salvation. The first ordinance of the church is baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper. And I'm not saying this again to be elitist, but what the Bible would tell us is that the way that you identify as a Christian, now many people are saved long before they're baptized. I recognize that. They come to genuine saving faith long before they're baptized. But baptism is that outward profession of faith to publicly say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. It's the way that I, it's the symbol of identifying as a Christian, okay? And if you haven't followed Christ's command to identify as a Christian, then you need to do that first, okay? In many parts of the world, 
For example, the people we prayed for today, our missionary partners, the part of the world they're in, nobody there believes you're a Christian until you're baptized because until you're baptized, nobody persecutes you. But as soon as you get baptized, you get persecuted. That same is true in India. The same is true in um, you know, many parts of the Middle East. And why? Because you haven't publicly identified with Christ. You can go around saying you're a Christian all you want, but until you're baptized, everybody recognizes you haven't really identified with Jesus yet. And that's true throughout the world. And it's just, it's so easy to be baptized in America that we think, oh, I can take it or leave it. You know, it's like kind of, it doesn't matter that much. But it really is important, the Lord commands it. Third, that you are a member of a church of like faith and practice. By this, what I mean is a gospel preaching church. You don't have to be a member of Calvary Baptist Church to participate with us but that you're a member of a church of like faith and practice, gospel-preaching church. In other words, if you're under church discipline because you sinned and a church called you to repentance and you refuse to repent, then you need to, you need to repent and make things right with that church who called you to repentance before you participate in the Lord's Supper. Or if you just don't want to be a member of a church because you don't want the accountability, then again, um, this is a local church ordinance. If you don't respect the local church, why should that local church serve you the Lord's Supper? if that makes sense, okay? And so, um, again, you're, and again, your need then is to be a part of this body. You can't disregard this body here of believers and remember the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And then fourth, that you have an orderly Christian walk. In other words, not that you're sinless, but there's no sin that you're saying, you know, next week I'm going to do that again. I'm planning to do that again. No, you say, Lord, I, I sinned this week. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need help. I need your grace to overcome this sin, to love you more. And you, we're all going to sin again next week, but we're not planning to, hopefully. If there's some sin that you're cherishing, then you need to not observe the Lord's Supper. You need to repent of that sin. But if there's a sin you committed and you're even struggling with, that doesn't exclude you. What you do is you confess it to the Lord and you participate in the Lord's Supper, recognizing this is the symbolizes what the forgiveness of sins is based on, Jesus' death on the cross for us. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and invite our deacons to come forward. We're going to serve the Lord's Supper. We're still serving it in one, we're going to hand you one thing, okay? So you're going to get two cups. One of them is going to have the bread in the bottom of it. Stacked on top of it is going to be the fruit of the vine. And uh, so you'll have to separate those yourself. And when we, we take the bread, you'll use the first cup and then the second cup when we take the fruit of the vine.